Welcome to Sugar Nutmeg. Alexandra here. And for those of you who know me, you know that I was born in Jakarta. But ironically, I had no idea that Jakarta was a code word for CIA operations in Latin America. I found out about this from the book The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins, who wrote the book after many years of working as a journalist in Southeast Asia, Latin America, and the UK. There was a time in the 60s and the 70s when people in Brazil and Chile were getting postcards telling them that Jakarta is coming, warning them of a campaign of disinformation and violence used by the US government around the world. Back in the day, there was a very interconnected exchange of knowledge between Southeast Asia and Latin America. This gave rise to a powerful pact between post-colonial countries in what is now known as the Global South. In fact, the term Third World did not carry this derogatory meaning that it does today. It was a term formed as an act of resistance and rebellion against imperialism, colonialism, and neocolonialism. The book The Jakarta Method details what happened between then and now that destroyed this powerful movement spearheaded by countries in Asia and Africa, including the now-defunct Afro-Asian Conference founded in Bandung, the city where Ruth was born. Having been born in Bandung, I was also never thought why this conference is now defunct. Despite the new NSB, the building where the conference took place is now sitting majestically quiet, swallowed by Bandung's daily traffic. It makes me wonder what happened to this powerful third world movement against colonialism and imperialism. What happened to those leaders working to forge a new way of doing things? What are the things we didn't learn at school about what happened after Rapat Asia Afrika? In our last episode, we talked about how these countries value the right for self-determination as opposed to those countries which value the right for freedom of speech. Can we find connections between the founding of the Afro-Asian Conference and the world today? What are the potential revolutions these movements could give rise to? What took away the spirit of togetherness? Where did the Bandung spirit go? What did it take to shape the world we live in today? And how come so few people know about this event? In the 60s and 50s in, in Central Java or Bali, yeah, it was really different. Like the peasant alliance would come to your town and help you on the farm and then you would have more food you know lekra would would put on shows in your village and that's what you would do every day was you would yeah. go watch the show and you would meet people at the show and you yeah. liked lekra because they were changing your daily life um the if you wanted to be a teacher you were probably going to join the teachers association you would have meetings and you would have talk and talk and i think oh, this is actually a, a, a major difference i see um in contemporary Indonesian like youth, mm -hmm. like, and a lot of people, Westerners especially, but also just other Southeast Asians, they come to Indonesia and they're like, wow, like Indonesians love, like even like young Indonesians love to have discussions, like they get together for like four hour talks <laughs> over coffee. And they like, mm -hmm. like, this is kind of like a really common thing among the like Jakarta, like the Jakarta politicized Youth that just doesn't happen that much in the United States. So maybe there's still some um, uh, um, lineages. Yeah, yeah. That's good to know because I don't feel that way in my, you know, Indonesian friend circles. I feel like my Indo friend circles are just yeah, like, oh, why do you talk about what you're Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean like, but in, in, in Indonesia, like, there was al I was always being invited to some discussy, and it was like four hours of coffee and people talking and talking and talking. Um, 
but yeah, even that is very different than this Cardinal era. Like mm-hmm. this is a, this is a, uh, this is again, something the CIA talks about in their own files. They're like, look, the reason people are voting PKI is because they come to their village and they make their life better. You know, yeah. they, they, they like, there's more mm-hmm. rice, mm-hmm. there's stuff to do. Um, they're like, there's de- defense against all kinds of problems. They like, they like get together and they kill all the mice, you know, like even like these really basic things that change your concrete material life. And then these like these organic, um, organic uh, connections that are formed through like working on stuff together. And yeah, in the United States, it tends to be like, which part of the internet do you hang out on? I mean, that's the, uh, you know, which is, you know, that's the, you know, that's what QAnon is. It's a place to hang out on the internet. And then you end up with like this ideas and it's totally like, it's just it, purely internet stuff. And um, that's the world we all live in. It's the world, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. online all the time. I think that's just the nature of 2021, <laughs> but yeah, it's different. Okay, so I guess to open, how come the US or people in the US are so much more um, familiar with occupation and military intervention in Latin American countries and um, their narrative of what happened in Southeast Asia is still very, like you said, skewed to the narrative that was built by the US. Um, And I guess my question as an Indonesian is that why is there so little information on um, US involvement in Indonesia? Whereas at least like in Cambodia and Vietnam and starting now, people are starting to know more about Laos, um, but Indonesia still seems very obscure. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think there's two answers, especially when we're comparing to Latin America. The first is sort of obvious. It's just that Americans tend to know more about Latin America. We have such a shared history. Um, People in the U.S. tend to try to learn Spanish at least a little bit, tend to visit once. We have, you know, the, the United States and all of the countries of Latin America are Western European settler colonies. We have a very similar dynamic, even uh, racially, politically, um, the same religion. So people in the United States just have an easier time understanding Latin American stuff. I found that as a journalist, it was a lot easier to go more in depth talking about Brazil than I did um, when I was um, writing about Southeast Asia. And But I think the second aspect has to do, I think, with partisanship in the United States. Um, one of the real reasons we knew so we know so much about the overthrow of Salvador Allende, for example, um, in Chile, and is because it happened under Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon was the kind of president for whom, and this is rare, there was nobody afterwards that really wanted to defend his legacy or stop the secrets from getting out. Right? He he really went down, and because of the very specific way that he went down, we got. Um, real access to what he was doing behind the scenes. And, and, uh, and because the, the narrative in the United States was that he was like a bad guy and he was a crook, everybody was willing to come forward with this evidence of what he'd been doing in Chile and also uh, Cambodia. Um, whereas in the case of John F. Kennedy, who was murdered, or Lyndon Johnson, who was a part of the, the Democratic establishment and um, his usually, which is usually seen more sympathetically by mainstream media, um, there has been a lot less attention on the stuff the Democrats did and a lot less declassification um, in comparison to the Nixon years. So for example, we still don't know exactly what the CIA was doing um, in the early 60s in Indonesia. And perhaps if if it had happened under somebody like Nixon that was disgraced and went out, um, 
with nobody um, trying to protect him, uh, we might have find, found out by now. So you had access to uh, CIA documents, right? Do you think um, they have just a whole lot more um, that are still classified about what happened in Indonesia and Southeast Asia? Yeah, yeah. We know that we know that they do. So a lot of what um, I used to to write um, this book, the Jakarta Method, was declassified State Department files, and a lot of those were sort of heroically uncovered and compiled by um, Brad Simpson, uh, academic historian in the U.S. Um, but the State Department has different rules for declassification than the CIA. The CIA has not declassified a lot of that stuff. In the research for the book, I called them and asked them. I was I, I just like emailed them and said like, "What did you do in the '60s in Indonesia?" And you know, unsurprisingly, they said, oh, "We're not going to tell you." So, um, yeah, we know for sure that there is there is some, there is there are secrets. From all of the theories about what happened in Indonesia in the '60s, which one do you think it's most uh, reliable or which one do you believe? Um, you mean like about, about what? I mean, there's one about the, about the massacre and the Suharto, Sukarno's around that time, because you mentioned Ben Anderson and then there's another, also the other theory. Oh, right? so, so I would start by saying that we know quite well what happened starting on, um, October 2nd, 1965. Um, that it's pretty clear based on declassified documentation, who took over, how, with the support of the United States, who oversaw the mass murder, who lied about it and how, um, that's all quite clear. Um, I have never come to a conclusion um, because I don't think we can really with the, with the information that we have about who organized the September 30th movement, right? G30S or... Um, Right. So, so I guess my question is, as like Indonesian, we also have haven't figured it out yet because I don't know, maybe we will never figure it out. But then how we move forward from this if we never know exactly what Well, happened. I'll start by saying that I asked everybody this question. Um, people that had lived through it, people that had um, family members killed, people that were academics studying this their entire lives, American academics, Indonesian academics, and everyone kind of has a different answer. Um, and I think that is deeply tragic. And I think the responsibility for that tragedy lies with the United States government and the Indonesian military, right? These are two bodies that if they wanted to, could shed a lot of light on what really happened by releasing the information they have. However, I think you can still come to a lot of conclusions based on what we do know. And what we do know is whether or not some very high level members of the Communist Party collaborating in planning the um, kidnappings uh, of the September 30th movement. The rank and file of the Communist Party had absolutely nothing to do with it, did not know about it, and was entirely innocent of any crime. So you can make the claim based on speculation and really theorizing that IDEAT had some level of knowledge, some level of collaboration, very little. Um, you can claim that it was sort of the the if if there was any collaboration, it was in, in purposefully um, brought about by disinformation campaigns on the part of CIA and MI6. That all I really don't know, and I think it would be kind of arrogant for me to 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 pick an answer when all these people that have been spent sixty years on it don't know, and they all have different theories. But I, I'm, I'm on very firm ground saying that whatever the correct theory, the mass the the 
ordinary members, the vast majority, like 99 point something percent of the Indonesian Communist Party was entirely innocent of any crimes in September and October 1965. How how frustrated are you when you did this research in Indonesia? Um, I mean, like in terms of like finding uh, data or informants or even talking to the the people who worked for the government to talk about this? I mean, I started from, well, I, I started from the knowledge that it would be very difficult to get any new information out of the Indonesian government. But I mm-hmm. also start, I also knew that um, what Indonesian activists and um, foreign academics had put together was enough to tell a really compelling story. So while I, while I think it's unjust that the truth, some part of this truth has been intentionally kept from the people, um, mm-hmm again, by Indonesian, by the Indonesian military and by the US government. I knew that was the case. And so I, I, I planned on those difficulties and I planned on doing it with all the other um, information available, which is, as I said, declassified information from the US and then you know interviews with people that lived through it. Ruth, I think, I think that's, um, do you wanna ask your question? Cause I think that relates to your question about like why the US is so scared of. Well, yeah, I'm just, it's just my, out of my curiosity, what, was exactly the American problems with the communist. With the with with PKI? No, just like communism in general. But like not even communism, just socialism, um democratic, socialist, I guess anything that's anti-colonialist or anti-capitalist, basically. Was it started with the red what it, what is it called? Um scare? In 1917, mm-hmm. or or in the 40s? Yeah, both those things. So I think there's two um, uh, two basic reasons. There's two ways to explain the foundational and fanatical anti-communism of the U.S. foreign policy establishment in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. One is very simply that America is kind of founded on different ideals. Like America is founded as the the foundational identity of the white American settler is that you get to own stuff. And if you own stuff, um, you have uh, you citizen. Vote. Yeah, if you own stuff, you have citizenry. Uh, you're an individual. You're allowed to crush or ignore pre-existing communal structures. Um, it's all about property ownership and individual enterprise, right? So, on one level, communism. I mean, Hobbesbaum in one of his histories says that um, the ideology of America is something like the opposite of the ideology of communism. Sometimes it's just like the perfect inverse of what communism stands for. So there's something about Americanness that is just sort of, that finds the the whole system very um, abhorrent. Um, And then second, and this is what tends to um, more properly motivate great power start history, is that from 1917, um, communism was seen as a competitor to the United States, a competing vision for the modernization of the globe and for a long period of time, it seemed like the Soviet Union might be doing a better job of getting that done. So mm-hmm. these two things combined, um, and as and as you said, it's very important to recognize that it's a good point you pointed out that the Red Scare started in 1917, not 1945 or 50 or whatever, because it started before the Soviet Union even did anything, right? It started. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't. It wasn't a reaction to the crimes of Stalinism. It wasn't a reaction, which you know did not even come out until 56. It was not a reaction to the the elimination of the Kulaks or whatever. It was a reaction to the existence of the, the Soviet Union. And those two things, I think, um, came together to, to create, as I said, a foreign policy establishment that was like really deeply fanatically anti-communist. And by, mm-hmm. by McCarthyism, if you didn't share that 
fanatical anti-communism, you were out of the government. There was no way you were in any part of the, the U.S. foreign policy establishment. And then in the 20th century, that very um, potent ideology would often combine with the concrete material interests of certain U.S. corporations that have a lot of leverage over the government. In the, I mean, in the U.S. system, that's what liberal democracy is. Uh, as you know, as a result of the way the U.S. Um, is set up, if you are a very powerful corporation, you will have quite a lot of power to um, influence U.S. foreign policy. And if you if you wanted, if you definitely wanted to get overthrown by the United States in the 20th century, the best way to do it would be to would be to be loudly loudly communist <laughs> and also to threaten a powerful U.S. corporation. Usually those things had to work together in order for it to happen. But when you had both, it was it was a real recipe for disaster, especially in the global south. Right. Going back to your first point, I think that is pretty similar with what happened in Brazil, right? Because there already existed uh, anti-communist atmosphere. Absolutely. I think. Right. So again, but as then, I said, yeah. I'm just curious, like what makes the the communist massacre in Indonesia very successful because we don't have that route because, I mean, yes, we have conflict in the past with the communist party in Indonesia, but it flourished under Sukarno. So what makes it so successful? This is, that's a really, that's really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting point. Um, and I only spent a couple sentences on this point in the book because it's written mainly, mainly for foreigners, but for Indonesians, I think this question, if I, you know, if, if I was writing a book, for more specialist audience, I would have gone into this quite a lot. It was really fascinating to me to find that in Latin America, there already existed the same kind of fervent anti-communism that you find in the United States. And I think the explanation for this is the shared legacy of settler colonialism. I mean, Brazil, like the United States, was founded on white people coming in, killing or excluding the native population, imposing their own religion, and establishing a system of private property, right? So. Mm hard-boiled into white Brazilian identity is this fear of an uprising from below, right? Um, the history of Brazil is, can be told as a history of slave, revol slave revolts and um, horrific terror to put down the masses that the, the elite fear are coming up um, to get them at some point. Hmm. And this inspired a very vigorous and potent anti-communist ideology in even before the Cold War started. So that when, when the United States really got going in the, in the years after World War II, um, interacting with South American elites, they're like, oh, wow, they, they, they sort of agree with us on a lot of stuff. They already have these own, these anti-communist legends. It was very different in Southeast Asia in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. There was even conservative Muslim parties in the 50s I'm thinking now of Masumi that was being funded by the CIA because that they were because they were seen as a bulwark against communism. They were seen as a party that could hold back communism. Even they were sort of con confused and um, alarmed by the the American insistence on on anti-communism as an ideology and in. Richard Wright's book, when he goes to the Bandung conference, he talks to Masumi leaders. And they're, again, I said, they're, they're getting loads of CIA money at the time. Mm. And even they say, look, like the Americans, like all they care about is anti-communism. That's not our deal. If that's all they care about, they're not, we're not really ever going to be allies with us. There was not this, this, there, this idea in Indonesia that certain classes are dangerous. You know, there was this ideal in the years of the revolution um, and the first years of the republic more or less that everybody was in this together, right? 
Um, and that's why you could see the Communist Party winning, winning, winning more and more and more votes. And the elite being kind of, all right, you know, I mean, there were some, you know, um, the regional rebellions in 1958 were somehow um, motivated by some elites being, having a problem with this. But the United States basically got there and they had to really import this, yeah. <laughs> this, this fanatical anti-communism. They had to make it really clear to elites like, this is really important to us. We're going to bring thousands of, the, of officers from the military to the United States to teach them the American way of life. And someone I, I spent a lot of time with um, researching for the book, Benny Wudiono, he was also in Kansas and you know, he sadly passed away since I interviewed him. But he said that a lot of the point of bringing thousands of Indonesians to America was to teach them this kind of how intensely Americans disliked communism and to get them to agree a little bit. And, but this took a long time, I would argue from like 1958 to 1965, there was a real concerted effort to teach the Indonesian elite, like, look, this is how we view communism. This is how you kind of have to, you know, if you want to get our, on our good side, if you want the aid that we can off, obviously offer you, we need you to understand this about how bad they are. And it worked for um, to a large extent with a certain um, part of the military establishment. Right, right. So it just made me curious, like, so during chaotic years in Southeast Asia, like 60s, 70s, where did that Bandung spirit go? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I mean, um, yeah, I think that the, the Third World Project um, fell apart in the 60s and 70s and fell apart for a few reasons. Um, the sort of violent aggression on the part of the Western powers was not the only one, mm. but it certainly doesn't help when the most powerful countries on earth are trying to break you apart. Right, but, um, but at there least was, we have hope. Yeah. <laughs> right, at least there was hope. Yeah. And like I said, I guess in the book, there was the third world movement was trying to do something very difficult. So even if there was no active opposition from the first world, there would have been internal contradictions. We're talking about a very large and very diverse group of countries. We're talking about countries with a lot of economic difficulties. Mm -hmm. We're talking about countries with class divisions, ethnic divisions. Even if it were not for murderous US interventions in the third world, it would have been very difficult. But those interventions did do a lot to take, to take out some of the biggest figures. Uh, Sukarno, Lumumba, um, Nkrumah in Ghana. Obviously, Vietnam um, mm -hmm. ended up, you know, engaged in a 30-year horrific struggle just to maintain its independence. So, yeah, I think it was those. It's, it was a combination of those two things: the the inherent difficulty of such a huge and multinational project, and then you know, the first world was trying to crush you. So you mentioned that Lumumba and Sukarno were big figures in, in that movement against imperialism um, and capitalism and colonial uh, colonialist capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, so when Sukarno was uh, taken down by the U.S., how come all of these big people who went to the Afro-Asian conference in Bandung and who went to, you know, support him and his, uh, him being a leader against colonialism. Like how come n nobody made enough noise for the world to pay attention? Sukarno to get his position back to maintain his I, I don't know like I I guess I compare it to like Jay like everyone knows so much about Jay and um his legacy and and how the U.S. really brought him down whereas like Sukarno it seems that uh, it's just so obscure yeah that's a good it's a really good question I think uh, there's a few things that point to an answer one is that confrontation confrontasi with uh Malaysia really annoyed some of the third world movement. So like Nehru didn't like it. 
Soviet Union didn't like it. A lot of his um, allies in the global south thought that he was going too far on this one particular issue mm-hmm. by picking a fight with Britain over the creation of Malaysia. Two, I think, would be um, that it's difficult for us to understand, even now, even, even now, even when the global south is still in such a position of um, material disadvantage compared to the, the global north, it's almost, it's, it's quite hard to, to remember just how precarious things were. It, it was so clear back then that the global north was in charge that, you know, smart countries in the third world movement understood when the, the more powerful side had won. I mean, I think a really good example of this is um, Ho Chi Minh in 1945, when he declared independence from France, he tried to make friends with America because he knew you didn't want America to, to conquer you. Sukarno, after um, the United States bombed the country in 1958, killing innocent civilians, he still tried to turn around and maintain a friendship with the United States because mm-hmm. you know that you have to deal with this country. This country is so incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. So the other countries in the Third World Movement, once you saw Sukarno and the PKI fully and thoroughly defeated, even though they might have lamented this, and there was a lot of lament, and there was a lot of soul searching on the anti-imperialist left in the in the late 60s as a result of the fall of Sukarno and, and the destruction of the PKI, they kind of realized, well, we lost that one. Okay. And then another thing is that Sukarno himself didn't want to rise up or cause a civil war. I mean, he, mm. you know, the Air Force um, was reportedly more sympathetic to the left-wing side of the Indonesian revolution than the armed forces. Um, but he thought it was important, more important to keep Indonesia together than to try to rise up against uh, the Suharto uh, de facto coup, you know, from 65 to 66. Um, so I think it's all those things. And, and, and um, it was kind of like other countries being sort of cynical or realistic about what they can do after the U.S. crushes a country like this. I mean, like, who was really like Beijing didn't like Beijing didn't understand what was happening, but they didn't and they, and they didn't. But when, as they finally found out, they didn't like it, but there was not much they thought they could do. The Soviet Union really wanted to stay out of this. The Soviet Union, again, the Soviet Union was very afraid of the United States after, um, well, for, really for most of the 20th century, the Soviet Union was very afraid of provoking the United States, but especially after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, so it was more convenient for a lot of people to sort of say, well, we lost that one. Maybe Sukarno, uh, I don't know, you know, in their own head, they blamed it on his um, confrontation with Malaysia. Um, in other ways, they were being self, they're, they're, you know, it was self-preservation. But mm-hmm. it's still a really good question. I mean, it really, it really kind of fell away very quickly, unless, you were, unless, of course, you were on like the really well-informed left or the active far right, which, you know, both of those two groups did take a lot of lessons from, from the fall of Sukarno. Do you observe the same thing in other countries that experience the Jakarta method? Um, uh, which, uh, like, do, uh, observe that kind of um, um, uh, uh, like acceptance is not the word, but like some sort of defeat where it's just like, oh, okay, like at the end of the day, they're too powerful for us to take on. So, you know, this is what it is. And like we'll just try to move on do you do you feel that that's how other countries deal with it yeah so that's an interesting that's really interesting um question too because there was a split in latin america and it was usually the capital c communist parties the communist the part the communist parties 
that were theoretically aligned with Moscow that took the more, let's say, cautious approach and said, now is not the time for revolution. We have to do whatever we can within existing structures. Uh, we don't want to provoke um, reaction. Um, keep quiet and you know, think about the long term rather than trying to do something right now. And then there, there was the people um, that were more inspired by Chikvara or Mal that said, no, 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 no. We have to rise up and arm right now. And they often drew on the experience of Jakarta for that lesson, right? They, they looked at Jakarta and said, oh, this is proof, more proof that we have to take the armed path. But the actual communist parties often took the, the route that you just described of sort of being like, well, now's not the time. We don't want to get, we don't want to cause any trouble. We will slowly work within quote unquote bourgeois uh, capitalist structures to think about um, a long-term revolutionary plan. Um, and a lot of that was because the, you know, because they were subservient to Soviet foreign policy and Soviet Union did not want to provoke the United States. So besides, like, besides the people that you write about in Brazil and uh, Chile getting postcards that said Jakarta is coming, uh, do you feel that Latin Americans in general know about what happened in Southeast Asia? Yes, then, not now. Um, I would say that the the left wing that was active in the 60s and 70s in Latin in Latin America really around the world was much more internationalist there was all kinds of these global publications and global solidarity networks where people in you know people in Chile felt very connected to what it was happening in Vietnam or what had happened in Indonesia and people mm. um uh in in, in people in the in Latin America in the 60s and 70s would have known about Sukarno and the PKI. Um, but a lot of that fell apart in what you, you know, what can maybe be called the neoliberal era. I think we're a lot more alienated and isolated now. Those internationalist left-wing movements fell apart um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and now, um, certainly looking at the way that my book has been received in Latin America, a lot of people are like, oh my, oh, what? Like, I did not, I did not know this. I mean, I, I, I remember this vague thing from my, you know, my uncle talking about um, the dictatorship, but I did not know how much commonality there was. And I think, I think we lost that in the last 50 years, this sort of, these sort of internationalist movements that were, were so um, dedicated to keeping lines of communication open between uh, movements around the world. Do you think that's also part of um, like imperialist uh, ways, like imperialist control as well, to, to keep countries isolated from each other? Um, because you talked about how like people in post-colonial countries did not learn about the progressive thinking until they did move to the their colonizer countries. Um, I think like, who was that? Like, was it Francisca who like went to um, the Netherlands or yeah. like in France? They yeah, yeah. no, that, that this was a really common dynamic in, especially in in the era when formal colonialism was still in place. It was really common that the sort of like vanguard revolutionaries of of uh, would have spent some time in Europe. And the reason for this dynamic was because it was often illegal to learn about this kind of stuff. So. For example, in, in the Congo, where you know Lumumba eventually came up, Belgium had banned any discussion of the French Revolution or Marxism at all in the educational system because the whole point was was not to create um, empowered subjects that would insist upon their rights. It was to keep people um, supplying 
raw uh, raw materials for consumption in the global north. And so, yeah, I think this is a, a key dynamic of um, colonial and neo-colonial uh, strategy, right? And and Sakono, who was uh, a member of the the youth organization of the PKI, never in the PKI, he talked to me a lot about this. He's like, look, you know the um, the new imperialists know what they're doing. They're not stupid. They use the, the, the strategy of divide and conquer. Uh, he even said it to me in Latin. Uh, and uh, he said that in the Cold War, this was um, employed to great effect and um, breaking apart, you know, a, a global movement to impose <laughs> the economic order. It, um, I, don't, I don't have evidence this was done intentionally, but it certainly comes, so the, the, the ultimate consequence is ultimately to weaken the position of the of the status or, or to weaken the position of those that challenge the status quo. So do you agree with Sukono that when he said that the economic condition and the ideology of Indonesia help uh, nurture the Communist Party in Indonesia? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, there was a real, there was a give and take, right? Like Sukarnoism to the extent that there is something called, you know, to the extent that there is, you know, Sukarnoist thought he was drawing upon from the very beginning Indonesian Marxism and, you know, Javanese Islam and Indonesian nationalism, right? And from the very beginning, he, you know, in many ways, his great skill was understanding what all of the, the diverse strands in his country and bringing them together in a way which would unite rather than divide people. So I think he's actually, he's, so absolutely, I think that, you know, Indonesian Marxism and the PKI going back to the 20s influenced his thought. And then vice versa, you know, in, in a process back and forth, sometimes more friendly than others mm -hmm. um, from the from 1920, you know, six to 1940, 1965. Do you think that without American intervention that Sukarno and Asakam would work? So that's a people ask me. Because yeah. in theoretically, it's good idea, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, that's a, I think so. People ask me this question all the time. Like, what could have happened instead of an army takeover in 1965? And I think that if you want to do a kind of alternative history, you shouldn't start in 1965. You should start in parliamentary democracy. And I think the better question is, what would happen if in the period of parliamentary democracy, the United States did not try to buy all the elections and then drop bombs on the country, right? So if in the 1950s, you did not have the really active and obvious intervention in Indonesian politics, and then you did not have the fomentation of the uh, regional rebellions in 1958. Then to me, the and if you had just let, you know, what if you would just let the Indonesian Communist Party win 20 or 30 or 40% of the votes? What if that was not horrifying to you? Because things like that happened in France, things like that happened in Italy. Um, could you have kept together or reformed uh, Indonesian parliamentary democracy if it were not for intense aggression from the outside against any left-wing uh, element. I think that would be the interesting question to see. What happens if you don't have CIA interventions in 55 and 58? Because by 1965, things were bad, right? By 1965, yeah. the economy was really bad. Sukarno had lost some support among key sectors of the population. The army was very powerful and very intent on crushing the left. They had all the weapons. It's hard to see that resolving itself in 1965 in a nice way. But what if you go back 10 years and say, let's change the rules of the global order defined by the United States and allow for countries in the global South to have a left, allow countries in the global South to pass laws which restrict to some extent the rights of foreign capital, 
then could you see Indonesia developing in a very different way? And I think um, it'd, be, uh, it'd be very interesting to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Relating to that, I want to ask about your book and why you chose, I guess, the word anti-communist, because in practice, it wasn't just actual communists who were made victims. It was just anyone at all who was remotely left-leaning, like people who believe in socialism or all, like, what is all this jargon? Like socialist, leftist, Marxist, um, collectivist, I don't know. Um, Feminist, you know. Yeah, yeah. They kill, you know, you were killed for, you definitely killed for being a feminist in 65 too, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I'm curious about like your your choice of using the word anti-communist instead. Um, yeah. Um, well, number one, I think it's sort of, you know, it's a title of a book, so it sums things up in a much more powerful way very quickly. Um, but I think I want to, I, I want to identify anti-communism as an ideology and as a project which is distinct from just meaning I'm not a communist, right? Anti-communism as it existed in the 20th century was not the same thing as being like, oh, I hope the communists don't win, right? Because a lot of people uh, in Indonesia wanted somebody else to win. They were, but they were not anti-communist in the way that the United States launched an anti-communist crusade. Uh, so I wanted to really give, give power to the idea that anti-communism is its own ideology and it has its own sort of projects and consequences um, that are much larger than just opposition to this or that communist party. And also, you're really right to point out that a lot of people killed in 1965 or in Indonesia or sorry, in South America in the 70s or Central America in the 80s were not communist. You know, in the case of Central America, a lot, like the vast majority were not. In the case of South America, a lot were Marxist, but some were even former military officers or whatever. And in Indonesia, there was, uh, as we all know, some people were killed for their ethnicity. Um, some some Chinese Indonesians uh, were killed. Some uh, 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 some people were killed just sort of for for whatever reason. In the you know anybody in the local authorities had a problem with this person, they might find themselves victimized. However, I did not want to imply that it was only those murders which were a crime. I wanted to make it very clear that even the people that were card-carrying members of the PKI, people that had dedicated their lives to serving the party, it was also murder when it was committed against them. Every single person that was killed in 1965, except for perhaps a tiny, a tiny member, a tiny uh, a group of uh, conspirators in Jakarta, was entirely innocent of any crime whatsoever. And I, wanted, I didn't want to shy away from that fact because often um, people use the sort of quote-unquote excesses of the mass murder in 1965 as a stand-in for why it's bad, right? Like, mm. as, if, as if to imply it would be okay if they only killed the communists, or as if to imply it would be okay if they rounded up uh, everyone that was in the party and put them on trial and then executed them, right? No, like, the vast majority of people were, that were killed were in the party or allied with it, and that, that does not in any way imply that they deserved, they didn't deserve a, a parking, they didn't deserve a, a, a fee, let alone to be executed or, or pulled into concentration camps for, for yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. Where do yeah. you think it's the line between 
the Nazis program in Germany and the Communist Party in Indonesia because both are like magnitude. It's, I mean, like you mentioned it, like the Bob Kennedy also mentioned it, like where's the humanity? Yeah, I mean, the um, lies when it comes to the Indonesians who died. Well, as as, as you know, um, NU at the time uh, had members that were sort of inspired by Hitler, right? So um, the, you know, the, they uh, had taken some inspiration from Mein Kampf to, as a way to combat communists. Um, and I think that the, I think that the Indonesian military and Hitler in, in this particular moment did the same thing, right? It was the intentional mass murder of political enemies and left-wing or perceived left-wing citizens. Um, and Hitler absolutely did that. Um, and uh, I think to explain the difference in repercussions globally, I'll go back to the same thing that I said about Nixon. When Nixon lost, nobody wanted, nobody was around to, you know, very few people were invested in defending what he had done. Um, the whole country kind of decided he was bad. When Hitler lost, nobody in the whole world was around to defend that. However, maintaining the myth of communist guilt for 1965 was integral to the success of the Suharto regime and as a consequence to the success of the coalition that the United States was building in the global south um, to quote unquote oppose communism and um, maintain authoritarian capitalist regimes. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering why didn't the U.S. just do the Jakarta method in like Cambodia and Vietnam. If, if it was successful in Indonesia and also in Chile and Brazil, I guess like why didn't they do it in Cambodia and Vietnam? In Cambodia, they did sort of try. So Lan Nol, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know Khmer, hopefully it's right. Lan Nol um, was supposed to be the Suharto of Cambodia. So um, in 1970, the U.S. had orchestrated a coup to oust Sihanouk. Um, and, the, the, you know, the forces that actually carried out the coup had trained in Bandung. Um, he was very much supposed to be uh, Cambodia's... Suharto. It didn't work, right? It's funny because, sorry, I was, I was just going to say because Ruth and I were doing research on that. And um, we said that Lonol and Soharto look so similar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Their face looks so similar. And we're just like, is this? Um, and then there's another guy from like some other Southeast Asian country. So we're, we're saying like, do, does the U.S. just select people <laughs> to have a certain look to be there? I mean, they've 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 used stupider <laughs> logic in the past, honestly. Like, I mean, in in Brazil, in Brazil, the guy that ended up being the first dictator of um, the dictator the 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 military regime that started in 1964 had been the roommate of John F. Kennedy's military attaché. Like, they had lived together in Italy in the 40s, and he's like, "Oh, I know that guy." I think sometimes mm -hmm. it can be that simple. I mean, disastrously and tragically and stupidly. In both South Korea and South Vietnam, they wanted Christians, which was like, what do you mm. like? The more, let's call them like intelligent imperialists in in Britain, were like, what are you doing? You don't pick, you don't pick someone from a minority religion. Like everyone's gonna, you know, that's not mm. gonna be stable. Um, 
but it, it, you know, so you know, I, you know, <laughs> that's funny that they look at like. But I mean, he really was supposed to be the the yeah. Cambodian Suharto. Um, so the reason this Jakarta method didn't work there is the same that didn't really work in Vietnam. Um, is that the Viet Minh in the forties, especially, but then they consolidated this in the fifties, had really established themselves as a really well well organized and tightly disciplined armed movement, right? So uh, through through um, years and eventually decades of military struggle against the Japanese and then against the French and then against the Americans, um, the Viet Minh was like a very well-run military organization. Whereas the Communist Party of Indonesia, as we know, was unarmed, had largely relied on doing well in elections for its power, and then later relied on organizing mass protests for its power. Um, so it was very hard to do something like the Jakarta Method against the, the Vietnamese communists because they were so tightly organized and armed. Um, the closest thing that they tried was Operation Phoenix. So Operation Phoenix was the closest thing to the Jakarta Method in Vietnam. Um, it was a program to execute tens of thousands of civilians working in um, the uh, government in the South, the, the government controlled by uh, communists. Viet Cong or whatever you want to call it. Um, and very interestingly, the people that worked on uh, Operation Phoenix were veterans of the anti-communist crusade in Latin America, like one of the guys had been involved in the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. But like, and that did kill, you know, tens of thousands of people. It was a horrible crime. But all, because the entire basically Vietnamese communist movement was armed and, and tightly disciplined, that wasn't enough to win the war, of course. Mm -hmm. And then a, a similar dynamic, again, and again, for better or worse, and I think the four-year experimentation in government or whatever they were doing in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge is one of the most horrific periods in, in, in recent Asian history. Pol Pot himself, in 1965, came to the conclusion that what they did in Indonesia is proof that I must be of intensely Ready. violent, yeah, intensely violent. Um, well-armed and self-defensive um, movement. I mean, I think the Khmer Rouge from the beginning was a very strange organization. Um, they probably would not have risen to power at all without the conditions of a devastating civil war, the mass bombing of uh, the countryside by the United States. But as it happened, you know, Lan Nol takes over and he does rule as a dictator, of course, from Phnom Penh. But the Khmer Rouge hiding in the countryside it's, you know, you can't just go arrest them like you could, you know, walk into some, you know, knock on somebody's door in Solo or, you know, uh, 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 Georgia and arrest them, right? So um, they kind of tried in both cases, but it wasn't enough because the, the, the movement they were um, up against was operated in a different way. And in the case of Cambodia, you know, very strangely, after Vietnam toppled the Khmer Rouge in 1979, the United States took the side of the Khmer Rouge and, and kept their movement alive on the border of Thailand and recognized them in the United Nations because they were so upset that Vietnam had, had been able to establish a kind of a uh, allied or controlled government in, in, in Phnom Penh. So they tried in both cases, um, but the, there was a different dynamic. You can't, you know, there, these were people that were all, uh, like in the, in the hiding in the jungle or, or, or um, 
in secret organizations, whereas the PKI uh, was, you know, most people were like, you know, this is one of the most difficult things about all the interviews I did with survivors. A lot of the members or the people that were in the youth wing or the feminist wing or the, the cultural organizations or the um, Farmers Alliance were kind of just like living their lives when they got picked up. You know, they were, you know, going to work. They were, you know, they were not expecting this to happen at all. Well, I guess I'm curious if winning Indonesia perceived to be more important than winning Vietnam, then why not the U.S. government just deploy U.S. troops from the get the day one? Why deploy didn't troops to deploy Indonesia? To Indonesia? To Indonesia? Because because I feel like the reason um, the Vietnam War or the American War, as they call it over there, is so well known in the West is because their troops actually went there. Whereas right. what happened in Indonesia, like it's it's secret like you know they sent money and they sent arms but the troops didn't actually go there and therefore it doesn't get any attention yeah i think that's right i think that the that indonesia was flipped from non-aligned to aligned very quickly without any americans having to really get their hands dirty let alone die um of course they did get their hands dirty in a moral sense but they didn't have to do much right they just kind of sat in the in the background um and that's, you know, that's how you prefer to do things if you're a hegemon or imperialist power, right? I mean, that's, that's, what you, that's what you want. I mean, the whole point of the CIA's coups in the 50s in Iran and Guatemala and then the attempt in Indonesia in 1958 is to try to avoid deploying troops. You don't want that. Eisenhower did not want that. Kennedy didn't, no one wants to send Americans. Um, and so the fact that they didn't have to was why I think Indonesia really fell off the map in terms of the English speaking world's collective memory. Um, uh, even though it's, you know, as you know, one of the most populous countries in the world and, and was more important to the Cold War than Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. You said in your book that I quote, US strategy since the 1950s had been to try to find a way to destroy the Indonesian Communist Party, not because it was seen undemocratically, but because it was popular. I'm intrigued why you use the word popular there, because it gets me thinking that, oh, well, maybe American has a problem with sharing popularity. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I am just... It's interesting choice of word. Well, yeah, so... Well, it was... Um, uh, as a rule, I mean, and we have, we have limited glimpses, glimpses of this, which prove the rule, but um, I think that you can say that across countries and across time, the U.S. often was more scared of a democratic socialist threat than a country that was obviously repressive and horrible to live in, right? So in the case of Chile- like and, North and, Korea. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I mean, that, that you know, they don't, that's, that's fine for them. Um, right. What was not fine for the U.S. was Chile, where mm. a country won a democratic, a president won a democratic election and he was doing stuff. I mean, Nixon was terrified, mm -hmm. not that Allende would turn the country into sort of a, 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 um, a set of Stalinist gulags, but that he would be so successful at democratic socialist reform that the rest of Latin America would want to follow in his footsteps. Um, and you can kind of think about this, you know, like what if you're the, if you're sort of a teacher in a class, or you have authority in a, in a small business, um, you kind of want to make sure 
that you set an example when somebody starts to do something that everybody, you know, if one kid in the class is doing something that you think everybody else is going to want to copy, but you don't want it to happen, you really want to stop that from happening, right? You really want to make it, uh, make it clear that uh, that's not allowed. However, if one student breaks a rule, but then they end up like hurting themselves as a result, well, then you can kind of let that, you know, whatever, everyone saw. Um, and in the case of Indonesia, um, the CIA and MI6 in 1958 both agreed that the PKI would have won an election if it took place, right? Hmm. That was the real problem. The problem was not that they had secret information that the PKI was going to carry out a violent uh, revolution and, and things were going to be horrible because that didn't exist. The problem was that if democracy had continued, the PKI would have won. And that was something that could not be tolerated. It's, I, I just want to point out, it's funny that you use uh, the classroom and school analogy, because when yeah. I was discussing this with Ruth, Ruth also said, oh, it's like America is this like popular, like, like, uh, um, like a bitter kid who wants revenge on like the bully or something because they're so scared. <laughs> yeah, because of like what they, uh, I mean, what the CIA did was like kind of like ridiculous, you no? Know? And like, like what happened in Philippines when they made vampires. the yeah the vampire thing, right? The yeah. vampires yeah. and then the sex tape with like oh, right. a bald yeah. a bald president, like so. Like our question is from all of these like stupid, stupid like CIA tactics or whatever. Um, it's all like fake news kind of stuff, right? Whether it's yeah, vampires it's, or it so sex tape. And so, so how do now, you feel when the fake news uh, hit America with? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's like I think that um, well, number one, disinformation was absolutely a tactic that was used all over the Cold War. The, mm -hmm. the CIA was yeah. very good at this. Intentionally spreading lies to justify what they wanted to do is absolutely part of American history. It's part of the way that we reshape the world in the 20th century. But I think you pointed to something else with the, that analogy about like the bully that's like trying to get revenge or like the person's trying to get revenge. A lot of the times the U.S. sort of seemed to be acting from a sense of like, how dare you? Like, mm -hmm. don't, yeah. don't, don't you know that we get to decide? But where did that ego come from, though? Because in the <laughs> beginning, you said they, they didn't uh, even realize that they were going to be so it's powerful. Founded. The U.S. is founded on like, oh, it's our land, bam, 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 right? Yeah, I think that's about right. I think it's deep down in our, <laughs> it's hardwired in our DNA. It's like, there's this like religious fanaticism to like, God has given, I mean, if you read there, you know, God has given us North America. Yeah. It is our job because we know the best way to use it. We need to take it away from the people that don't. If they get in their way, not only are they like our enemies, they're like an insult to the order of things, to the to the not to the proper natural order of the universe, right? And I think you you that came up uh, when we discussed like why would the U.S. back the Khmer Rouge against Vietnam in 1979? And and Benny, who as I said, sadly passed away, and he was in Cambodia and did a lot to actually. You, you know, bring, you know, help put Cambodia back together uh, and expose uh, all the worst things that had happened there. He was furious at the United States for backing the Khmer Rouge from 1979 to 1990. And I asked him, I went to visit his house in Connecticut and I asked him like, why were they doing it? He's like, I think the United States was just so bitter that Vietnam beat them in a war that they just, they had to get revenge on them however they could. Mm -hmm. And so in 79, um, China, uh, again, this is very, uh, 
poorly understood, invaded Vietnam to punish them for liberating Cambodia. And Jimmy Carter, who like is the most, you know, nice liberal pacifist president of all time, uh, told Deng Xiaoping like, oh yeah, 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 you should do that because it's unacceptable for Vietnam to be, to be doing that in, in Cambodia. And I think, yeah, I think part of this is like, as you said, it's this foundational arrogance that Americans have that um, since we did, we got so rich so fast with this land we stole from the actual American people, um, that's proof that we are, we, we know how to order the universe in the correct way. And anybody that opposes us is not only offensive, they're like, it's an insult to, to God, almost whatever. Like, so, so what do you think about the newer movements of like the youth in the U S or, you know, like socialists in the U S um, now there's a lot of like Facebook groups by like Gen Z's that started like communist groups on Facebook. So it makes me wonder like these young people who are at least preaching anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism, do they, are they really uh, anti-imperial and anti-colonial? Are they really leftist? Like, how do you even say ideology that they're fighting for? Um, is it also like a neo, um, is it still like a neoliberal sense? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So um, I would say that the United States now is very much a suburbanized, alienated, individualist and sort of fragmented place. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of people in the U.S. like, um, you know, in the quote unquote neoliberal era or in the era of U.S. imperial decline or in the quote of sort of um, U.S. hegemony, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's hard to grab on to much in the concrete real world. It's not like, it's not like um, before where the left was part of these like very organic inter international institutions mm -hmm. where you would yeah. meet people and organize in the workplace. And a lot of, you know, a lot of it's internet stuff. And, and I think you pointed to, uh, you know, some like some, I think you're probably referring to like some, some stuff that seems like sort of, it's more concerned with being edgy than. than yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Than material change. I think part of that is probably just the internet and being a teenager, you know, like I think that uh, <laughs> that that is there's some element of that. But I think also, you know, to to the to whatever extent that um, people in the modern United States, young people do get sort of um, politicized. It's through these like you grabbing from here and there. You read a lot of Wikipedia. You start following people on Tumblr or whatever. I don't know. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the fact that that is what is the only the fact that it, that is the, the the only way that thing, that politicization is possible now is probably not good. That doesn't mean that it has to be discarded because that's all there <laughs> that's all there is. Um, but I do think that to go back to what we were discussing right at the beginning of that question, I do think that even on the U.S. left, there can be an unconscious reproduction of this American exceptionalism that like we're going to figure out the problems, like we're going to create the perfect type of politics in Brooklyn, and then that will be what everyone else will kind of automatically do too. Um, and I think that, that it's, it's, as I said, it's unconscious. Usually if somebody en ends up trying to consciously identify as an anti-imperialist, they'll work to try to not think that way. But I think that uh, to a large extent, the U.S. suffers from both those um, problems. The 
deep alienation that comes from suburbanization and also like our deep inherent belief that we're the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of Trump being banned from Facebook and Twitter? No, I'm just curious because I do agree, <laughs> but at the same time, I thought you guys are like a country where you can like freedom of speech and blah, 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 but then you banned Trump. But I do yeah, agree I that he's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. No, You're I think that's it. Uh-huh. No, I'm like, if you say that, are like, who who knows? Like, some some like ass listener will be like, well, oh my I'm god, just you're curious, right so like... for saying that free speech argument. <laughs> well, that's gonna, you know, that's the again, that's the world we live in. Like, whatever. Um, I think again, like, I think that the point, uh, Ruth, it's tough to reduce the this question to a simple yes no, um, because I think that you can agree that. Um, uh, you can you can like that Trump is no longer on Twitter, and still see a real problem with de facto tech oligarchs deciding what is and is not protected or what what is not um, able to be said on the platforms that the whole world uses, and still have a very big problem with that being decided on a for profit basis, right? Because you know, like. They didn't ban Trump the day he said the worst stuff, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. They ban- they banned him. They banned <laughs> when they him. know that he's he's, he's done power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they banned him a week or two before he leaves. When all of all of the business community in the United States and most of the political establishment in the United States is abandoning him. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to read the decision of these social media companies purely as a purely in like the most vulgar reductionist basic marxist way and just be like well they're just doing whatever's going to help their profits mm-hmm. it, it 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 lines up pretty easily right i don't yeah. think that i don't think that explanation always works but it does work right now and um so yeah i think that you can you know you can have a real problem with trump saying that stuff that he was saying on social media and also not think that the universe that uh the universe of options that gave us this final outcome is a very good one i mean it uh, I saw somebody else put it this way and I thought it was good. It was like, our only two options should not be begging Mark Zuckerberg for help or doing nothing, right? Like, if these are going to be publicly important platforms for political discourse, there needs to be some kind of rules um, uh, that govern them that is different than just like what some rich guys in California think will keep them as rich as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny because like I I was uh, thinking about the part in the book where you said that the Duels brothers said um, unless you are staunchly against Soviet the Soviet Union you are automatically anti U.S. Right. and that that kind of sentiment is a lot of what's happening right now in in you know what do you call it? like popular culture that yeah, yeah. unless you're like so fucking against something right. like you're. <laughs> you're like automatically anti something and and I, yeah i don't know it's it's just very interesting but also i'm curious about what your thoughts are um since you did a lot of research on the soviet union I, what what your thoughts are about the current um i guess like us people's opinion on russia because i feel like there's also still a very overly simplified understanding of yeah what Russia is right now when their yeah. history in the past. Yeah. First of all, I think this tendency to 
really draw a line in the sand and say everything on the other side of this line is bad and we're good is again a deeply American thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that this the, the, this tendency going global is really kind of a, a consequence of the Americanness of the internet. I wrote something about this that came out a couple of weeks ago. Like it really goes back to our kind of like fanatical Calvinist view of the world. Like, no, no, God has blessed these people. Everyone else is out. Um, the, the witches must be burned or whatever. Um, and again, like Indonesians didn't think like this, you know, like even Masumi, like Masumi, when they were talking to Americans, like, like, look, that's not how we work. Like we don't, like we all kind of know that there's different types of, you know, there's a lot of different religions here. Even the very conservative Muslims, we're, we, we don't share your sort of very, um, uh, this view of the world that is starkly divided into black and white. And, uh, and I think this sort of globalization of this sort of very American and, and, and um, Puritan tendency, I think is kind of a problem. Um, but then secondly, again, <laughs> uh, I think the American discourse on Russia since Trump's election has been like really wacky. Um, I actually, before I moved to Southeast Asia, I was trying to move to Russia. I, um, I, when I was living in Brazil, I was taking Russian classes and I had planned to perhaps move to Moscow in 2017 instead of Jakarta. I ended up being followed around Moscow by a, a secret, a, a member of the secret police that was trying to intimidate me. So it's not like I'm, I'm not like naive. Like a Russian secret police or? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's very, they do it on purpose. The idea is for you to be intimidated. It's on purpose, mm. right? So it's not like I'm naive about Putin's government. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a crony. It's a system of like intensely corrupt capitalist elites, you know, doing whatever they want, basically. However, the narrative of, that came out of the 2016 election seemed like a, a real, a really deranged interpretation of what really happened, which was that a lot of Americans voted for Donald Trump, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to come up with a list of reasons that Donald Trump won the election, um, I wouldn't put Russia in the top 10. Now, it was it was bad that they um, sort of became active on the English language Internet trying to mess around with the election. That was very bad. That should be condemned and investigated. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like the U.S. liberal establishment had a really hard time looking in the mirror and t- acknowledging the domestic roots of Trump. And so they really wanted to point it on some big, bad, evil guy from, a, 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 from a, a, around the world. And because of the Cold War, I think it was really easy to grab on Russia. Like everybody grew up kind of thinking Russia's evil. So like, oh yeah, Russia, that'll work. And, um, you know, it's, it was interesting that, that like, you know, that we didn't hear a lot of talk about that uh, in 2020. Uh, it was a huge part of liberal discourse for a couple of years. And again, a lot of countries in the world have bad leaders. A lot of countries in the world are acting in ways internationally they should not, and we should condemn that. And we should not be shy about condemning that just because we critique U.S. policy. But like, it's you know, Russia is not running the United States. You know, like that. It was. It, it became almost as if Putin has was pulling the strings and everything that happened in in the most powerful and richest country in history. And that was just. Mm. It was. I think it was a really like. Mm. Um, a really sort of pathetic response to our own failures. You say domestic, but I also feel like a lot of people who voted for Trump are people who fled Venezuela, Cuba, Vietnam, Cambodia. Um, and I guess they they associate the Democrats with like far left, extreme far left 
administrations that they experience. And so now they they like completely switch sides and vote for vote for Trump instead. Well, I don't think so. Actually, I don't I often I think that's really right and that's important to understand. But I think it's often not a case of switching sides. It's often a case of right-wing people going to the United States because they are right-wing. And there's nothing wrong, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being right-wing or choosing a country which is perceived as being mostly right-wing. Um, in the case of the Vietnamese population in California, like I grew up in the part of Southern California that has a big um, Vietnamese population. A lot of them were active in the government, the U.S. allied government in Saigon. Like um, I went to like a Catholic church where like the mass was either in English or Vietnamese or Spanish. and um, it wasn't like they came to America and then like flipped. It was like they were on the right. And then that's why they ended up in America. And that, that's often mm, the case mm. in, um, with, the, with Latin Americans, like in Brazil or Cuba. Usually the people that go to Miami are the people that are on the right. You know, if you're in Brazil, for example, if you're more sort of a elite left-leaning liberal, you're going to end up in Europe. Um, if you uh, are not, wealthy enough to get to Miami, you might go to another Latin American country. Like a lot of my friends, I spent time in Venezuela. A lot of my friends left for economic reasons. And the ones that go to America are the right-wing ones. The ones that go to Mexico or Chile are the ones that are more, mm-hmm. that aren't left, left-wing. Right. Um, in Latin America, it's very well understood that the United States is a right-wing country, right? So in, in, in Brazil, if you march with an American flag in the street, you definitely are a fan of Bolsonaro. That's how like mm-hmm. Bolsonaro... Bolsonarismo is seen as a continuation of U.S.-backed right-wing regimes. So if you were like the kind of Brazil, like in Brazil, if you meet a Brazilian and they go, I'm thinking of moving to Miami, you already know, oh, this person's probably right-wing. It's not that they get to America and flip, right? Um, and, um, and I think that's, that, that, that is important for Americans to recognize because Americans need to recognize that just like the United States, all the other countries in the world are big and complicated and they have left-wing people and right-wing people. It's not like the, uh, you know, both the right and the left in the United States tend to project their own fantasies onto the people, fantasies onto the people of the global South rather than like getting to know them as they are. And, you know, like there's absolutely right-wing people not in America and there's absolutely left-wing people not in America. There's nothing about sort of a, a certain racial makeup that makes you yeah. Democrat or Republican. And there's absolutely right-wing people that come from, um, Southeast Asia, East Asia, Latin America. Um, but usually if they go to America, it's because that they're sympathetic to, to that country rather than the other way around. I mean, in, you know, in Russia, you know, if you poll uh, Soviet Americans, people that had spent a little time in the Soviet Union, but are now American, they have horrible views about the Soviet Union. And that is absolutely valid. And there's a lot of reason to have those views. But if you poll people in Russia about the Soviet Union, a majority of Russians think that the fall of the Soviet Union was a bad thing. So I think that too often we, we view the, again, this is a very American um, delusion. We often view the diaspora that's in the United States as sort of the true representative of a nation rather than just mm-hmm. learning the very simple and obvious point that like countries are, countries are diverse and there's all kinds of political opinions and, and being from one country doesn't give you any isn't going to mean that you have one uh, idea or another. Right. Uh, I'm interesting because uh, you said in your book that Nuri Hayati, she felt that there's this connection between the old generation of Indonesia with the new generation of Indonesia, right? When you're in Indonesia, do you feel the same? That the younger gen- the young generation of Indonesia 
they don't know much about what happened in the 60s. So that's interesting. So, so Nuri, um, um, uh, who grew up in Havana uh, because her father Hanafi was Sukarno's ambassador to uh, Cuba, she was talking about um, the difference between the Indonesia of the 50s and 60s and the Indonesia that came after. Um, and I can't really speak to that difference because I, I, I don't know, all I know about the 50s and 60s is what people like her told me. But I definitely think that the Indonesia of the 50s and 60s was more you know, openly anti-imperialist and leftist and, and um, revolutionary than the Indonesia of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. However, I would also say that I think people that are 18 in Indonesia now are a lot more willing to learn about, you know, tr- try to find out what happened in 1965 than people that are 35, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. There's like people a gap. in our generation, they I, mostly we don't care, right? Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a gap. It's like but the it's new like, generation, yeah, there. Yeah. I'm I'm just like thinking about your answer about how like all of these people from extreme far left countries come to the US because they are already right wing and they um cuz I felt like when I when I first came to the US and I met Vietnamese people whose parents immigrated here or like there's this like narrative that oh my god my parents had to jump on a boat and come all the way to the US um, like not, not because they were like, or they were already like right wing or like pro capitalist thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was more like they were such victims of, of violence. Um, and like us is like this country that will save them from that. I, I'm just like, yeah, that, that is a, that is a narrative that's been, um, that's been like, planted, I guess. Um, you no, know, I mean, I don't, so I don't absolutely, <laughs> that absolutely happens um, where things get bad in a country, whatever country it is around the world, um, because of a left-wing regime, because of a right-wing regime, and you just flee and you don't have, it's not, you know, you don't have any politics and you just end up in the United States because that's a place you can go. Uh, and that, and I think if you, if you're talking about the boat, um, quote unquote, boat people, that's a, that's a horrible term, that tended to be less ideological. Um, the people, I, a lot of the people that I grew up with in South, um, in Southern California, uh, happened to be in uh, part of the South Vietnamese regime, so they didn't like the the, mm. the communists mm. already for years. That you know, that was those two things went hand in hand. Um, but uh, what I will say is that um, even when you're so, but it's but overall from a you know, and this is not a moral judgment whatsoever, but from a purely empirical analysis, if you are the if you if you look at all the people that leave Venezuela because of uh, economic collapse in the last few years under um, a left wing government, uh, the ones that get to America tend to be more right wing than the ones that get to Brazil or Chile or Mexico. Right, right, right. Because a combination of resources and a combination of propensity, the people that tend to really want to go to America, um, to, on on average, of course, you know, just uh, you know, as again purely empirically, tend to end up more in Miami. And ones that are just like, gosh, oh, like I can't get a job. It's hard to, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to mm-hmm. pay the pay the bills. It's hard to get food. And I know, and I know a lot of both, right? Like this is not, I know a lot of both tend to end up in countries like, you know, Europe, uh, you know, Western Europe or Mexico or Chile or Brazil, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, right. um, and 
definitely. I mean, again, this is, I don't want to, this is not for me really to speak about because I have, you know, I'm, I have not from uh, this kind of an immigrant background in the United States. I'm like, you know, a, a white Californian. Definitely in the US, there is a, um, there is a narrative in, in mainstream media that like likes to reward the narrative of like, oh, well, there was a bad country I came here because this one's better, right? Yeah. And cer- certainly in my research, um, I've met just as many people from Central America, for example, that are like, oh no, like I'm here because like my country, my village was destroyed. I don't like America. <laughs> I wish I was, I wish <laughs> I could be back there. But, um, but uh, we, we do, we, we do, we are very proud of this narrative of like, you know, something bad happened to you and we're the ones that'll take care of you. Mm. Um, definitionally, that is not possible for, you know, any, you know, less than 1% of the population of the, the world that, you know, experiences some kind of a problem can have the United States. So like, that's not like a solution to global politics, but we do like that narrative. And I think it's, people are really encouraged to, mm. to use it when they have it. I know, I know we're running out of time. Can I ask like a big question? So with the fall of U.S. imperial, I guess like the decline of U.S. imperialism and the rise of the CCP, do you, from your research, can you predict whether the U.S. will do another round of like, um, I don't know, massacre or like, uh, like some some crazy tactic that will overthrow uh, the communism, quote unquote, communism from the country China. Yeah, I think that's a good question. So I think this is you know this is the big question, right? I mean, because China's rise over the last forty years seems to be more solid yeah. and and more stable than the Soviet Union ever threatened to be. It looks like China could really, you know, who knows, maybe they're going to fall apart, you know, but it looks like China could really be in a position to take global leadership in a way the Soviet Union was never even close to doing. Um, and if that leads to the kind of a reproduction of a second cold, of the Cold War, um, if we have something like a second Cold War, I don't know what form it would take, but one prediction I would feel relatively safe making is that the people that pay the price will not be Americans and Chinese people. They will be people in other countries that are used as the battleground between these two great powers. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. I think that if we see something like, just as in the first Cold War, it was very rarely, you know, Russians or Americans that died yeah. um, or had their countries torn apart. Um, if we have a second Cold War, it will be the countries that are perceived as um, up for grabs or that can be flipped one way or the other that will suffer the worst consequences. And unfortunately, that's not a great prospect for countries in Southeast Asia or countries in Latin America. But um, I don't know what tactics it would be, but I I think that's the danger. That's one of the main reasons we should be so conscientious about learning the history of the 20th century is to see who really suffered and to understand where the destruction happens when two, two powers go at each other so fanatically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should we ask the final questions? Yeah. 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 So we always ask our guests as a final question is always question related to food. So since you spend quite some time in Indonesia, what is your favorite Indonesian dish? Okay. Uh, I actually, let me think right now. I know 
Maybe like yeah, from got, Jakarta specifically. No, no, no. It's 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 gado gado. It's gado gado. That's it. That's what it is. <laughs> like hundred percent. Whoa! It's it's. I thought like, you were gonna choose something more. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of like Westerners, they really like like rendang or something like. I know, really like. Know. I really like. I do really like rendang. I do. Um, I really like. I mean, okay. So my favorite like Indonesian food is probably like the. Um, really spicy fish dishes of Sulawesi like oh my god yeah 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 like um makassar and like yeah just like up and down manado yeah yeah in manado like the really yeah like like basically like fresh fish with like really spicy chili on it and then some vegetables um so that's my favorite region and then my favorite dish that I always love when I'm on java is gado gado oh interesting Mm. Why? So, what, what, what did you what did you expect me to say? What do people usually say? They usually say rendang or what satay. Nah, I mean that's fine. I mean that's a good thing. That's like a nice breakfast. It's good. It's like comforting, you know. Um, did they? Did you actually eat like actual spicy like fish? I mean, I I, I don't know. Like, is this bad that I'm asking you if you wait, eat wait. spicy? <laughs> oh yeah, and this is a classic. You know, this is this like when I was firstly learning Indonesian, this was a conversation that I had like so many thousands of times that I had, like, I, I became, like, I learned this, like, memorized it, because wherever I was, I would eat, I would order, like, the really spicy thing, right? And then the people would be like, what the fuck, like, wait, you eat spicy? Like, well, that's really spicy. They're like, oh, no, but white people don't like spicy, and then I would, I would have to explain, no, I'm from, I'm from Southern, I'm from very close to the Mexican border, actually, like, we, a lot of chilies are from, and this one, so it always comes, because, like, a lot of the chili, like, the actual chili, like, the chili that is eaten, across Indonesia like originally comes from Mexico right mm-hmm. and so I'd be and this would always be a conversation so yeah to answer your question yeah I like really spicy <laughs> including like can like the actual really spicy stuff in in uh whatever Makassar or, or wherever I'm trying to think I mean in in Manado so in Makassar I had like really spicy food in Manado I had like let's call like very like um exotic like very like, like the porridge the family porridge the Manado porridge is well, it like I, intestines and stuff, like crazy animals and stuff? Yeah, I don't want to go to like yeah. Well, in in like in in Manado, there's like the like Manadanese food, but then there's also what is the uh, Minahasa? What is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, Minahasa. Minahasa. Yeah. And they eat like all kinds of stuff. They eat everything, and that was quite interesting. There was I had to like draw the line in some places, but uh, hmm. we watch tons of your interview with another podcasters on YouTube, and yeah. I never stumble upon you speaking with another Indonesian so yeah I know. yeah well, why it, is that well so this <laughs> is sort of like the 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 publishing industry itself is exists in a American-led almost neo-colonial world so even though I don't I want I, I hope that my book reaches anybody in the world equally like I don't I didn't write it for Americans I didn't write it I don't want to sell in America first I want I just want it to be out there in the whole world in order to get in order for it to get translated and published abroad you have to sell in America first and like that's weird it's like it has to do with it's like fashion fashion is the same way yeah or like it's either Western Europe or, or America so like so when the book came out, it came out mostly in America. And I like what the publisher really cares about first is sales in the US. So you really, really mm-hmm. pump sales in the US. So I was doing all interviews in, in, in US media and talking with people, you know, which is fine. It's fine to talk to people that don't really know anything about this history. That's great. I, I want the, those people to know about it too. But 
if the book, if and when the book comes out in Indonesian, Spanish, Brazilian, like I'm going to be just as eager to promote it there. Probably more eager, actually, because I think it's probably politically, I'm sort of more interested in what might happen in in the, in that part of the world, yeah. in those mm-hmm. those countries. Yeah. But for commercial reasons, you have to kind of prove mm. yourself in America first. Like if if I didn't sell enough in America, they would stop. They would stop printing it. Right. Mm. You have to like kind of clear a certain bar to to make to be translated and to get a, a paperback version. Mm. The book will come out in, in, in Indonesian in sometime soon. Mm. If you know, if you know- um, Suchin, is it Suchin? So I'm doing the same publisher as her. It's, you know, Marjin Kiri. I don't yeah. know if you know them. Yeah, yeah. So I know, they, I know them and I know that they really want to put it out. Maybe they'll have problems, but they're going to try. And mm. then- Will they I'm publish gonna... it in English or in Indonesia? Indonesian. Indonesian? Wow. Wow. Oh, really? Wait, is it actually like, are you like, are you like in, are you Joshua Oppenheimer 2.0 where you like can't? (laughs) Maybe, we really don't know. It was very, so it was a very funny process because. Of course, there are so many more things in Vincent's book that we didn't get to discuss in this episode. There will definitely be a lot more discussion to be had. We definitely encourage you to read his book, The Jakarta Method, as well as an article that Vincent wrote on N Plus One magazine called Which America is the True One? And if you want a much lighter take on globalization, Vincent wrote a funny article about how all chilies in Asia was derived from the Aztecs and the Incas. If you want to purchase The Jakarta Method, feel free to visit Vincent's profile on bookshop.org, where you can also see his recommendation for other books about this topic as well as links to where you can purchase the book in your community to support local independent bookstores. For those who have watched The Act of Killing, Vincent's book deciphers the powers between those mass murders. This book is a milestone in the long journey of shedding light on this issue that's been so concealed in a strategic way, bringing it to a global audience and bringing us one step closer to justice for the survivors. We want to thank Vincent again for chatting with us in between his research for his second book. Thanks for listening. And until our next feast, this is Ruth. And this is Alexandra.